Amen. As I said, third week of Advent. If you're counting the weeks to Christmas, uh, usually this means we're about a week and a half away. Actually, we're a week, a week and a day or something. A week and two days. So we're actually, we have a short, short fourth week because uh, Christmas comes on Tuesday. We'll be here Monday night, Lord willing. But I'm looking forward to getting into Micah chapter 5. So if you want to open your Bibles, we will have it on the screen, so don't feel any obligation. But Micah chapter 5, 1 through 6, where we learn here that God promises to shepherd His people into peace and safety. And uh, when we talk about a senior pastor, sometimes we think of that term in a kind of a human way, like a, in this world. So who is the head pastor at a church? But actually, that term really should be kind of reserved. Uh, it's reserved for Jesus. Because in 1 Peter 5, that's what Jesus is called. He's called the chief shepherd, the senior pastor. Uh, and that's who we see as the, really the ultimately the senior pastor of our church. We take that seriously. When we make decisions as a church, uh, when we pray, when we communicate with one another, when we think about the direction of our church, we want to know what does the senior pastor think about this. Uh, so we seek his will certainly in the scriptures, but even above and beyond that, where the scriptures are not clear, we pray, we're seeking his will and his leading. He's the chief shepherd. And this is one of the ancient prophecies about Christmas. So last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, that the Messiah would come from Galilee. We mentioned that's the region in the north in humility, coming from a region that was formerly a place of contempt. Well, we learn here in Micah chapter 5, also written around the same time as Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, that the Messiah would be a shepherd to his people and that he comes from Bethlehem. And you say, well, how can he come from Galilee in the north and Bethlehem, which is a town in the south? We'll talk about what that is, where it is a little bit later. How could he come from both? And some people even said, maybe we have two messiahs. One comes from Galilee, one comes from Bethlehem. In hindsight, which is always 2020, we see that the messiah was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Galilee. Both are true, and we see that in the life of Jesus. And remember, this was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. God promises to shepherd his people into peace and safety. So read with me, if you will, Micah chapter 5. We're going to go 1 through 6 this morning. We read this. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. God promises to shepherd his people into peace 
and safety. Matthew Henry, the famous commentator, said from the 1700s, said this is perhaps the most important single prophecy in the Old Testament. That's how important he saw. Micah chapter 5, 1 through 6. There is an outline in your bulletin if you want to see where we're going. Follow along. Uh, But we see about this shepherd that's to arise from this town, this little town of Bethlehem. And first we see in verses 1 and 2 that God uses small things. God uses small things, and particularly he likes to use this this small shepherding village. So verse 1, he says, Muster your troops, because siege is laid against you. And this is what happened. This is written, again, before the siege of the Assyrians, but that's what he's prophesying. If everyone knows what a siege is, it's when an army surrounds a town or a walled city and doesn't allow anything to go in or out of the city. So cuts off the food supply, cuts off communication, and eventually the the town either surrenders or they're so weak that the invading army comes in and conquers them. And that's what he's saying. uh, Jerusalem will be laid siege, uh, and actually the northern kingdom is actually eventually exiled by the Assyrians. And he says here, with a rod they will strike the judge of Israel. The judge of Israel is another name for its king. Uh, The king will be defeated. He'll be humiliated. He'll be insulted. He'll be struck down. Uh, Just like we saw in Isaiah, he's prophesying about a time before the Messiah comes in which it will be a time of gloom, a time of defeat, a time of discipline and punishment for Israel. But in verse 2 comes the prophecy. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah uh, is the region, the broader region around uh, which Bethlehem sits, lies in. Uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So it wasn't even really considered to be a clan. Uh, maybe akin to Merrimack Valley, right? We're not a county. Merrimack Valley is too small to be considered a county. But it's the larger region that Haverhill uh, sits within. Out of you will come a ruler for Israel. Uh, one who's to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And some have seen that from of ancient days as a reference to the early prophecy of this Messiah. Uh, It dates back to, way back to, well before Micah, that the son of David would become the Messiah. So, hundreds of years beforehand, David is the greatest king of Israel, and it's said that one of his sons, meaning one of his descendants, his great-grandson, great-great-grandson, somebody will become this coming Messiah. But others have seen this, and I think I go more with this. Uh, The word used there is olam which is often a reference to God himself. It means eternal. Uh, It's not just that his origins will be from of old, the prophecy about his coming is from of old, but that his origin will be eternal. That the one who comes out of Israel, this Messiah, will actually be the eternal one himself, from ancient days even beforehand. And God uses the strangest little place to bring out the Messiah. He uses Bethlehem. Now, we, uh, a group of us went to Israel. For any visitors here, we talked a lot about this. But we, a group of us went to Israel, and we got a chance to visit Bethlehem. We only got a chance to see it from afar. Uh, it's uh, Palestinian sort of led. We didn't have a chance to spend much time there, but the bus stopped. We got out, and here's a picture of, uh, of Bethlehem. If we could throw it up there. The first one. The first one. See that beautiful picture of Bethlehem right there? That's my family. I'm, I'm really proud of my family, so I've got to show you the picture of us standing before Bethlehem there. But now we can go to the second one. So if you look at Bethlehem, you'll see a lot of fields. 
A lot of olive trees, it probably wasn't that green uh, 2,000 years ago, but not much. There's a city sort of in the, in the background. There's a little bit of a city to the left. Um, it's obviously been built up a lot in 2,000 years, but Bethlehem is a, a tiny little place. And isn't it amazing to think it's an actual place, a big aloe plant that was right there in the picture. Uh, in those very fields came the Messiah. Uh, what is Bethlehem? Uh, Bethlehem is a lot of things. Uh, as I said, it's a small town. Now, remember, when I say it's a small town, Israel is a small country. Uh, Israel is not, land-wise, it's about the size of New Jersey. Not a big place. And 80% of Israel is desert. So it's, it's not a big place. Compare Israel to Saudi Arabia <laughs> or to Iran or Iraq. It's just a tiny little place. And in the ancient world, outside of what we read in the Bible, it didn't play a huge role in world politics. It's a pretty insignificant place in terms of the political world of the ancient world. And not only that, it only had really one major city, which was Jerusalem. Maybe you could say Sephoris, which we talked about last week. Besides that, they were just these little dinky towns. And here's Bethlehem, a nobody town, a tiny little place, not even in the big city of a relatively insignificant country in the ancient world in terms of politics. Very important in terms of theology, obviously. That's Bethlehem. Uh, the, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. Bet, house, lechem, bread. And Ephrathah means bountiful. So literally, if you want to know what it means, it means the bountiful house of bread. <laughs> Which is interesting, isn't it? Because it's out of there that we get the, the bread of life himself, the Lord Jesus. Uh, the one who provides spiritual food to the world. Bethlehem was also a, a town with a legacy. So even though it was a small town, uh, it was the town of David. So imagine a, a great politician, a former president or something, or a former great celebrity, like Graceland or something. Somebody was born there, and that kind of gave it some recognition, although it still remains a sort of small town. Uh, if you read the book of Ruth, which we've done in the past, it tells the story of uh, some of the happenings in that small town with Boaz and how he marries this widow. It's a, kind of a nice, cute little story. Uh, but again, it's all sort of small town happenings in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem had one other very important um, characteristic to it. It was a shepherding town. Uh, most of the residents there were shepherds. And as we said, in those fields of Bethlehem is where they grazed their sheep. Uh, many of those sheep eventually ended up at the temple and were used for sacrifices in the temple for the people. And isn't it interesting then that out of Bethlehem comes not only the great shepherd of, his, of God's people, but the Lamb of God. Some of these things are just too perfect <laughs> to be coincidental that the good shepherd of all of Israel and all, all of the world, as we'll see, comes out of a shepherding village and who also ends up being the Lamb of God. God tends to like to use small, insignificant things to do great works. We see that again and again in the Bible. Uh, he uses that which is small, uh, which doesn't sort of catch the world's attention, uh, doesn't seem to be the place you would suppose or expect, and he uses that to do a mighty work. That's one thing I, I love about Tolkien, uh, Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? 
Yeah, good. A lot of Lord of the Rings fans here. So Tolkien got this. He was a Christian as well, and he understood this. And so what do you have? You have the Dark Lord Sauron, right? And who is the, dis- the direct uh, sort of servant of Morgoth, the one who rebelled against the God figure in the whole picture of Lord of the Rings. And he creates this huge, Sauron creates this huge army of orcs and urukai and all these huge, vast, evil creatures that are all gathered. And what, it, what opposes him? What is the hope of all of Middle-earth stuck upon? A little hobbit from the Shire named Frodo. <laughs> all the hopes are stuck on a little guy who's got a ring in his hand and is going to try to save everything. Uh, he got the idea that God tends to use that which is small and insignificant in the eyes of the world to do great and mighty works. And friends, I wonder if you're someone who says, you know what, I, I, I'm not qualified to be used by God. <laughs> I don't have, I don't have a, a PhD. I, I, I'm not some great public speaker. And who am I that God would use me? I would say, perfect, you fit the bill perfectly. <laughs> it's almost a prerequisite to be a nobody, to be used by God. Because then, ultimately, he's the one who gets the glory, not us. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, For consider your calling, brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God uses people just like me and you to do his work. It's his plan. Anyone here know who Mordecai Ham is? I didn't expect to see any hands, but I was wondering if I might see one or, or two. I didn't expect anyone to know what Sephoris was, and there were a couple of hands that went up for that. Mordecai Ham, interestingly enough that none of us have heard of him, was the man who led Billy Graham to faith. At a revival in 1934, he was a traveling evangelist uh, who Billy Graham came forward and came to believe in Jesus. Interesting, we've never heard of him. Something tells me he was pretty significant and important. <laughs> He led the man who led millions to faith in Christ. And we've never heard it. And who's the guy that led Mordecai Ham to faith? We don't even know who that is. It's lost in the annals of history. God uses people like me and you to do mighty works. Another example is uh, a Church of Scotland minister. Uh, and this one, uh, you know, I can relate to as, as a pastor, certainly. Was asked by a constant critic at the end of his ministry, How many have been converted under your ministry? The minister admitted that the answer was, not many. In fact, he said, I know of only one boy. Only one boy that came to faith. The boy's name was Robert Moffat, who was to serve as a missionary in Africa for 54 years. It was said of Moffat, quote, when he left in 1870, a whole region had been Christianized and civilized, and many African Christian congregations ministered to by trained African ministers had been formed. God used a small town Scottish pastor to lead a man to faith who becomes a missionary and leads many to faith. And it's not just about evangelism, friends. When you and I serve the Lord, do what he's asked us to do, follow his leading, God takes that and he uses it and makes much out of it. 
God could use a little town called Bethlehem with only a few, whatever, hundred people in the entire town to bring the Messiah into this world. And he can use you and I. He tends to use what is small. Verses 3 to verse 5a, the first part of verse 5, God uses his Messiah to shepherd us into peace. So it's no surprise, he raises up the shepherd from Bethlehem, and who is the shepherd? This is the Messiah. We don't know him by name in the time of Micah. Of course, now, in hindsight, we know he's talking all about Jesus. Verse 3, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Uh, Given up means given up into exile. Uh, When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, they sent them into exile. When the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom, they sent them into exile. Only some of them returned and they lived under Roman occupation. Until when? Until she who is in labor gives birth. Uh, No, there is no reference as to who the she he's talking about. Some people think he's talking about Israel. I think as Christians we would say he's not just talking about Israel. He's talking about Mary, the virgin who gives birth to this son. And then what happens? The rest of his brothers shall return. God brings the remnant back together, the people of Israel, verse 4. And then this Messiah will stand and will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Uh, He's still the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the the senior pastor of the church today. The majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He comes as the king. They will dwell secure for now. He, for he, uh, he will be great to the ends of the earth. This hope is more than just for Israel. It's for the entire world. This Messiah will shepherd everyone. And then look at the end. Verse 5a. He shall be their peace. He shall be their shalom. Is the word there. Uh, shalom is a, a broader word than just peace. It doesn't just mean the, the absence of conflict. It means the presence of something. The presence of inner peace, the presence of completeness and wholeness, that all is right. What is the Messiah's purpose in coming? To bring peace. Now you might say, well, it's been 2,000 years. The Messiah has come. Um, Where's the peace? (laughs) Where's the peace that he's supposed to bring? Uh, Will we ever have world peace? And I think there's a number of ways we can answer that. I would say the first thing is uh, we do have a certain level of peace um, in this world, and that as Christianity begins to spread, and this is just historical reality, all right, that as cultures and civilizations become shaped by Judeo-Christian values, they tend to get better. I mean, hospitals get built, orphanages get built, things begin to change, civilization begins to increase, and we see that, and civilizations can be better or worse. And the better they are, the more peace there tends to be, the worse they are, the more war and suffering there tends to be. But there'll never be, of course, complete peace. Will there ever be a time in which the whole world is at peace for a day? Maybe. (laughs) But soon after, some war is going to break out somewhere uh, and there'll never be peace. So he does bring in a level of peace in that sense. But there's another sense, of course. Those here who Christians know. He brings us peace with God. That's the primary peace that we need. Uh, We are sinners. Uh, We are broken in our relationship with God. We need a Savior. Uh, Out of our own good works, we'll never reach up to God and restore ourselves. So Jesus comes and makes peace with God. And that we have then for a relationship with God, one that is at peace with Him and no longer under His wrath. And that results in the presence of the Holy Spirit who gives us an inner peace. A peace that can be there in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of all war or devastation or suffering or cancer or grief 
or loneliness or depression or anxiety or whatever you're struggling with, there can be peace in the midst of that and inner peace, the presence of God. I, I was watching the movie Wonder. Um, uh, anyone's read the book Wonder? We get younger guys, folks. Yep. Yeah, okay. Anyone seen the movie Wonder? Good movie. Well worth it. I'm going to ruin part of it. So if, you do, if you're going to see it, you know, there's one part where uh, Wonder is about a kid who has uh, Treacher Collins disease, uh, which leads to a pretty severe facial deformity, um, and he gets bullied at school. And there's one point in time where the parents meet with the, one of the bullies and his parents. I'm sorry, the, the principal meets with the bully and his parents. And as they're talking, the parents try to defend their son. Uh, that he's not ready for this. This is too much to put on any kid. He has nightmares because he sees this kid. And they try to do this kind of wacky defense for what their kid is doing. And I love what the principal says. He says, the boy can't change what he looks like. But we can change how we see. That was, that's a pretty powerful line. The boy can't change what he looks like. But maybe we can change how we see. And I think that's how we see uh, what happens to us in Christ. Maybe we can't change the world and all of its suffering. Not immediately anyway. But we can change how we see it. As temporary. As something that ultimately will be gone. Which comes to the last way in which he brings peace. He brings an ultimate peace, but it's still to come. Uh, Jesus' coming began (laughs) the reign of the Messiah. It began the peace which is spreading out to the world. But it hasn't been climaxed. It hasn't been finished yet. In fact, it won't be until Christ returns. And by the way, on 12.30, on December 30th, Mitch is going to be preaching on that piece. Sorry, I just gave a little, little foreshadowing there, Mitch. Uh, and for Revelation 19. The day will come when all war and all suffering and all conflict will be gone. The day when Christ comes and sets all right and brings in the final shalom to his world. So we live with the hope of that upcoming peace still to come. Friend, I would just say, if we recognize we're followers of this Messiah that's promised, that's promised 700 years before Jesus actually came, and we follow this Messiah, then we should be for peace. First of all, I would say, if you're here and your faith is not in the Lord Jesus, that you don't have a relationship with God, look for peace with God. And that peace with God is not going to come from your own works. And it's not going to come from attending church. And it's not going to come from any ceremony that you undergo. It's going to come through faith in Christ our Savior, who is our peace with God. Look for that peace. And then I would say for those who are in Christ, (laughs) pursue this inner peace. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. This is a peace that no one can take from you. This is a peace that changes not what the world looks like, but how we see it. This is a peace from within. So that even those who are suffering for Christ around the world, rotting away in prisons for their faith, would say, I'm at peace, completely at peace, because Christ is with me and His Spirit dwells within me. And then certainly, friends, for those who have that inner peace as well, we should be pursuing peace in the world. We should be certainly pursuing peace in the local church. Uh, There's supposed to be a spirit of unity that we live out of. And I would say about our church, uh, I really see that. Uh, When I come here, it's one of the most peaceful places to be. (laughs) No matter how rough the week is, no matter what I'm dealing with throughout the week and how many issues there are, when we're here on Sunday morning, there's a spirit of peace to be with you guys, to be with God's people. And then we're about peace in the world. Uh, We should be those who are seeking to bring 
peaceful solutions, like a Martin Luther King Jr. He's one of my heroes, by the way. A man whose peaceful rebellion did more for civil rights than anything else, than any other violent rebellion uh, in our country. Be for peace as we serve the Prince of Peace, the Messiah who brings shalom. And then we come, verse 5b to 6, God uses under-shepherds, under-shepherds to protect his people. Look what we see there in 5b. Uh, when the Assyrian comes into our land and he treads in our palaces. Again, that was still to come. It had a pretty immediate uh, fulfillment when Assyria comes in. Uh, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. So this isn't the Messiah. This is someone else. This is some people in addition to or under his authority. His coming brings in these under-shepherds, these seven shepherds, eight princes of men. That type of language was a common way in Hebrew to describe something, seven or eight. Uh, in other words, the number is not exact. It might be six, might be nine, might be 11, might be 12. I mean, it's a certain number of these under-shepherds who will come into Israel. Uh, we raised up and they will shepherd Assyria with the sword which is strange imagery. You don't shepherd with a sword. You shepherd with a staff. Uh, but in other words, they're going to protect Israel. And then the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And I don't know if anyone giggled when you heard the word Nimrod. Uh, Nimrod, interestingly enough, Nimrod would be very upset that we giggle at his name. Nim- Nimrod was a great hunter and warrior. <laughs> and he comes really early, way back in the uh, book of Genesis. Um, I was wondering how his name kind of became associated with a, a fool. And uh, so I found, uh, it's okay, this is Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Uh, the legendary Nimrod is also sometimes associated with the attempt to build the Tower of Babel. So he's the one who sort of led the charge to build the Tower of Babel, uh, the beginning of Babylon, the Babylonians. Uh, because the tower resulted in the wrath of the Lord and proved a disastrous idea, Nimrod is sometimes used with another meaning, a stupid person. So that's what, uh, if you call someone a Nimrod today, it's, it's not a, a compliment. But as, as Mitch did a whole sermon, I think, on Nimrod one time, Nimrod is a representation of Babylon. And when you think about it, the two great enemies of Israel in their later days, the early days were, were the Egyptians and the Philistines, but in their later days were Assyria and Babylon. And I think they're used here as a symbol of the enemies of Israel. And what does he do? He raises up here a group of people who will keep them from invading and will protect Israel. Verse 6, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Who is he referring to? What's the fulfillment of this group of of people? And I think our mind probably kind of goes to the 12 apostles. (laughs) Uh, So the shepherd comes and he raises up under shepherds. Uh, one of them was a traitor, so you got 11. It's not seven, it's not eight, but you have a group of under-shepherds who care and protect Israel. And you think about Jesus' ministry, what did he do? Uh, the majority of his ministry, majority of his ministry was spent with his apostles. He had his public ministry, he would preach to thousands and thousands of people at once, but then he would retreat with his group of 12 men and spend all the evenings with them, teaching them, instructing them, encouraging them. Why? Because he knew that after he was ascended from this world, he would leave the care of the church physically to them. He raises up under shepherds, and what is their primary responsibility? To protect Israel. 
to protect God's people. Now you might say, well, what, they died. Uh, so what happens next? And some people say, well, they, they, had, they passed on their apostleship to the next generation, apostolic succession. Uh, so certainly this is what Roman Catholicism teaches, that the cardinals and the pope are the apostles of today. Uh, they have a direct line to Pete from Peter and the other apostles, and they get passed around directly to them. I don't think the scriptures give us any clue that that's what's happening. Uh, although I would say certainly, if you look at the next generation of, of Christian leaders, some good folks, um, we don't learn much about them because they're not in the Bible, uh, but some, some solid guys like Tertullian, Good, solid, sound doctrine. Justin Martyr, who spent his life uh, ministering to the Greeks and bringing the gospel and saying how it connects to the Greek world. Uh, or Polycarp. Uh, it's great names, like Polycarp, right? Much fruit, Polycarp. But uh, Polycarp, who was burned at the stake. Uh, he was an old man, 86 years old. And uh, as they were getting ready to burn him at the stake, they gave him one more chance. They said, Polycarp, if you renounce Christ... And you reject him right here and right now. We won't burn you at the stake. We'll set you free. And I love his response. I think it echoes throughout history. 80 and 6 years. I have served my Savior. And he has done me no wrong. How can I deny him today? And he's burned at the stake. And he passes into glory. Right there and then. But I don't think that's what he's necessarily saying. They're a, a, a group of specific individuals. You know, men that are passed on. Uh, I do think it refers to church Leaders, uh, spiritual leaders, that he will continue to protect his people with these spiritual leaders. Now, I would just say, friends, for all of us, what is the role of a pastor or an elder or a deacon or an evangelist of the church? Their role is to equip the saints to make sure that they're spiritually protected and that they continue on in the faith. Exactly the role that he's raising up these seven to eight princes or shepherds of men. Um, uh, just some advice for some, some, some folks here are, are newer believers uh, the local church is, is one of the means of grace that God gives you to continue on in the faith and yes you can be a Christian and not be part of a church <laughs> but the local church is there for a reason it's there to help you in your faith and to help you grow and he gives you under shepherds to teach the word uh, to take a, take a person and send them to get a whole bunch of education Soak them in theology for three years or more. Uh, and then say, all right, learn Greek, Greek and Hebrew and make sure you know the Bible really well. And then you say, all right, I'm going to devote you to, the, to shepherding the church. I, I've been thinking about this. I have 11 years of, of, um, years of education. That's all in Bible or ministry. Which means I can either be a pastor or go teach. That's it, right? Because those who don't do teach, right? I, I'm, I'm not equipped to do anything. I couldn't be a mechanic. I mean, I, my, my, my dad and my brother are mechanics, the airline mechanics. I don't know how to be a mechanic. I know how to preach the word and be a pastor. Other than that, I don't know anything else, right? And so that's, that's, what, I, that's what I can do. Um, or something physical, manual labor, I guess I could do. Uh, but why do we do that? Because, as we know, this is God's plan, as he calls the local church as a place where we're taught the word. It's also a place of fellowship and love. Um, any good church leader say, I, I want to see more fellowship and love and encouragement here. Uh, it's a place of accountability. And at first you might think, accountability is not much of a gift. <laughs> I don't want to be accountable to anybody. But when you know that our hearts are prone to wander, our hearts are prone to leave the God we love, um, we know that accountability is a good thing. We need that. We need the encouragement to say, hey, where were you? We haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. 
Uh, you're not involved in a community group in a Bible study and somebody's encouraging you to keep going in the faith that ultimately that's a gift. Church leaders are a gift that God gives to his church, to the local church, to the body of Christ. Friends, God promises to give us a shepherd over his people who shepherds us into peace and into safety. He raises them up from a small town, a nobodyville, I mean somebody in the middle of nowhere, um, as he continues to do even today, uses people from any background. No matter, how, no matter how shady that background is, no matter what things you have in, in, in your background, uh, no matter how unimportant you think you are, what education you lack, how lacking of skills you might be, you're exactly the kind of person that God chooses to use. And he uses us for all different purposes. He gives us the Messiah himself who is still today the chief shepherd over his church. He's still the senior pastor. He brings us into peace. An inner peace that we have now, <laughs> a peace that's already spreading throughout this world, though it's not complete. And ultimately we look forward to that time of ultimate peace when Christ returns. And because he's not physically present with us, he shepherds us through these under-shepherds. He gives us a local, a local church to care for us, to keep us accountable, and to be spiritually maturing as we await his return. Friends, God uses the little town of Bethlehem to do his work. Of course, there's a song called O Little Town of Bethlehem. I think we're going to sing that in just a bit. But I want to read you two lines of it as we get ready to close. O little town of Bethlehem. And this kind of just brings in Christmas as we're only a little over a week away. How still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin. And enter in. Listen to this. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. Pray with me. Oh, our gracious God, thank you that we live after the fulfillment of this prophecy. That Israel waited for 700 years to see the fulfillment of this day. And we get to look back at its complete fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come to us out of Bethlehem and has brought us peace. Well, not its complete fulfillment, because we still await that peace to come in its fullness upon Christ's return. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the shepherd of your people and will always be, for all eternity, our senior pastor. And thank you, Father, for the local church in which you raise up under shepherds to protect us and keep your people as we await the day in which Christ sets all right in this world, in which pain and sickness and suffering and Satan will be no more.
We ask this in Christ's name, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.